Hello and welcome to another exciting and, you guessed it, jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. I'm your host, Danny Lobel, and today's a great show. I have Christian Finnegan on the show, a great comedian who I've known for many years. But before we get to that, take a listen to this word from our sponsor. Warning. Last year, over 40,000 Americans died in car-related accidents. Not a pleasant thought, is it? In fact, as thoughts go, it's downright depressing. Well, that's where we can help cheer you up. We're StandUpRecords.com, and we offer the finest in CDs, DVDs, downloads, and merchandise from the best comedians on Earth. Artists like Mark Marin, Maria Bamford, Eddie Pepitone, and Doug Stanhope. Available at fine record stores, Amazon.com, and the iTunes Music Store. That's StandUpRecords.com. Come on, listen to us while you're driving. Live dangerously. There you have it. Stand Up Records, folks. A great company, and they've got great albums out there, including my first album, uh, I say first because there's a second one coming out, but my first album is Some Kind of Comedian, and it's available on Stand Up Records' website, standuprecords.com, also on Amazon and iTunes, so there you have it. Okay, Kristen Finnegan and I recorded this in his apartment in Astoria, Queens, oh boy, about a year ago, I guess. I know I'm behind, but I'm getting them out there, and the good thing is that they're not time-sensitive material. They're evergreen, as they say. And, by the way... um, one other quick thing before we get to the episode. I have updated the moderndayphilosophers.net website, where, by the way, you can make a donation to the show. It helps me out. helps keep the show going. In fact, it is what keeps the show going. But uh, go, go to moderndayphilosophers.net, and I have video clips up with little snippets from different episodes from last season, and uh, you get to hear clips from the wrap-up show of Alex and I discussing a favorite moment from the episode, and it leads right into that, and I hope you love them. I hope you love them. Why should I hope you like anything? Go for the go for love. I hope you love them. I hope you love them. All right. Here's the episode with me and Christian Finnegan. Without further ado, except for the intro song, enjoy. Hello and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school. Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel! You comfortable? Sure. Let's it's, do it. It's your place. Hopefully you're comfortable I in your own place. Well. Not comfortable anywhere, but uh, yeah, really, so, you're not comfortable anywhere. I'm not a comfortable person, um, but yeah, let's do it. Okay, well, we're doing it. This is it. Oh, this is it. This is it. My God, <laughs> what an exciting uh, beginning. I know. Right? Are, are we on? Are we on? Is this going? Are we doing it? <laughs> um, well, thank you for coming to my uh, humble abode. Thank you for hosting me here. I appreciate it. it. Were you serious? You're not usually comfortable. I'm not a comfortable person. No, I kind of distrust people who are comfortable i mean there are moments of of comfort but i generally feel like i there are very few times where i feel completely in the moment and not sort of watching myself from afar in a way you know like uh i i often say this to uh to my therapist <laughs> no but uh but like sometimes I, I, I really do feel like I am operating my body via remote control from somewhere else. Like I don't feel like in it, you know? Yeah. Um, that's one of the things that, you know, when stand-up is great, is there's one of the few times where you can really feel like I am experiencing this moment as it's happening for real. And, and even better sometimes when you can kind of control the moment a little bit where you feel like you're kind of steering the thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, I always liken it to the end of The Matrix, you know, where all of a sudden he figures it out and he can stop the bullets and he's like not even paying attention, you know, like. That's so uh, funny. I always see stand up like The Matrix. Yeah. I, I was yeah. just talking about this with Colin Quinn. Yeah. I, I think it's probably something that's pretty common. But yeah, when you feel like you're almost controlling the environment, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the most part, in sort of social situations and things like that. I, I very rarely feel that sense of comfort or, you know, confidence or whatever. Or control? Yeah, no. Hell no. I, it's funny because I never thought of you as somebody who's not confident, but... Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, uh, I'm of the opinion that no one is confident and that we're uh, people who say they are or they're either lying it. or they're sociopaths, um, <laughs> which a lot, of ta a lot of very successful people are sociopaths, I think. Um, but 
it is sometimes strange when I realize that the way I am perceived by people bears very little resemblance to how it feels like inside the noggin, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and part of that is probably my own fault, you know, or not fault, but, um, you kind of come up with a, a stage persona, which is semi based in truth, but it's like an exaggerated version of some sort of personality trait. And I, I do kind of like that kind of show busy schmaltz a little bit. Like I, I kind of like that overconfidence thing that, you know, I, I think I probably was very influenced by Steve Martin, you know, um, that sort of false bravado thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I've always tried to find some combination of very personal writing and very impersonal performing in a way, if that makes sense or not impersonal, but trying to marry like i try to write from a very personal place and then i try to perform from a very brave and confident place or whatever and so i think sometimes maybe that would make someone think that i was like very confident all the time i don't know do you think that's because it's some kind of a guard you don't want to get too vulnerable because maybe because the writing is so personal you don't want to i don't i don't know i mean it's not like i'm up there talking about you know my my uh you know, my girlfriend's abortion or something like that. Right. I mean, it's not like ultra personal, but I don't know what it is. I, I sometimes you, you just get on stage and there's a certain thing that comes out of you that might not come out of you just when you're sitting there at a dinner table talking to people. There's a certain personality that kind of just feels natural or feels fun to sort of play with. And, and you know, I, I kind of like fopping it up a little bit and being very sort of little Lord Fauntleroy-ish, you know, on stage. Okay. Um, kind of pretentious and faux intellectual or whatever. Mm. But um, I don't know. I should probably have an answer. I should probably have this shit down at this point. It's only been 18, 17 and a half years. But, uh, but no, I still don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think sometimes it's like a shield, you know, for me anyway. Yeah. You try to shield yourself cuz you being you're putting a lot out there to begin with. Yeah, then, ostensibly. I mean, I'd like to think there's certainly things that I do bits about that would feel extremely weird and uncomfortable to actually just talk about in a conversation. You know, there's this safety of performance and there's a comfort zone to really explore an idea that you might not even explore with your significant other or friends because it would just be weird and awkward and why are you saying this to me? But on stage, it feels natural to kind of ex really drill down on some weird feeling that you have. I was talking on one of these podcasts recently with Jason Zumwalt. Do you remember him? He used to do comedy in New York, but he stopped doing stand-up. I'm always hesitant to say that I remember or don't remember someone oh. because my name... my. I remember names and I remember faces, but I don't remember whose name goes with whose face. That makes sense. Or whatever. You're not alone in that. Yeah, everybody's I'm got that. That's absolutely fine. the worst. Anyway, I was talking to Jason Zumwalt, who used to do comedy in New York City years ago, and he stopped. And I asked him why, and he said, "Well, he stopped when his dad died, because he was just kind of he realized he was just trying to be heard by his dad, <laughs> and that's what it was about. And it just got me thinking, like." What's it about for me? Do you ever think about that question? What, what What's it about for you? Yeah, kind of perpetually. I don't have an answer. Um, I I mean, I sometimes when, when, when people ask you, you know, when you do some college paper interview or something like that, and they always ask you the same questions like, what got you started and blah, blah, blah. And so I have this sort of pat answer, which is the truth, but it's one of these things where I've just repeated so many times it feels redundant, but just that I kind of, I was an actor who hated acting and I hated what the life of an actor would be and I hated the people I knew who were actors and and then I wanted to be a writer and I don't have the discipline or the work ethic to be a writer and so stand-up was kind of a hybrid where, you know, you're performing because I do enjoy performing, but it's your own thing and you're sort of a mercenary, you know, you're kind of a wandering samurai, just yeah. your own. And so, I mean, those are the sort of more tactile reasons that I do it on a more emotional level. I don't know. I just sometimes feel like I have a bit of a, of an unquiet mind 
in the sense that it's kind of almost a way of uh just getting the thoughts out <laughs> you know like just cleaning you know it's it's m- people talk about comedy being masturbatory but not in the way that i mean like kind of sometimes you just need to masturbate literally to get it out yeah <laughs> like that's sort of sometimes <laughs> how it feels but i like i like why you talk about being more present on stage than you are in life i think for me it's it's a fifth it's half the time it's that way and half the time it's not so sometimes i'm but I, I also go to therapy. and uh, Most of us should. Yeah. I, think. I didn't until a couple of years ago, but, you know. It I, helps. You know, it's it good. helps. And it just helps in the sense that there's someone that you can talk to for whatever, 45 minutes every week or two weeks or however, however often you go, where you don't have to wonder, am I burdening this person? Am I annoying this person? You're paying this person. Yeah. And so there's a freedom to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, oh, okay, I'm literally just going to talk and I'm going to say this crap out loud. And not once do I have to be like, oh, and what are, what are you up to? Like, I don't have to give a crap. I do that anyway. Know? I do, I that do too. <laughs> I always start with that. So what's been going on with your and week? The, and then do they tell you or they just turn it back nah, to you? He's, he's a, well, he's a very, he's an older dude and he's kind of seen it all. And he, he'll give me a nice answer and he'll be like, all right, avoidance over. Now let's, right. you know, let's begin or whatever. But um, my therapist always says, "Why did? Why do you ask?" And then just tries like these sneaky tricks to just get it back to me. <laughs> what is? What are you trying to achieve by asking me that? And the answer is because we don't want to feel like self indulgent assholes. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, so yeah, I get a, I get a lot out of it just in the sense that I know for at least once a week I can not have to wonder, am I dominating this conversation? Because the answer is yes, and that's fine because I'm paying for it. Is it something you worry about normally? Yeah. Really? Yeah, 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 for sure. Absolutely. I I come from uh two very different people. Um my father, who I am a lot more like, is very embarrassable. Like he's very um discomforted easily, you know, by he gets very uncomfortable if 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 he gets the feeling that people are bothered by him or annoyed by him and he's very deferential like i'm sorry am i being annoying right now and in my mother who is uh mentally ill uh is the exact opposite and i don't say that to throw it out like oh my mom's crazy no she's like actually mentally ill but she will just spout off on this crazy shit and i'm sure i'm sure on some level my dad being nice catholic boy like that's why they got married in the first place like oh you make me feel awful all the time just the way i deserve to you know there's (laughs) probably some catholic crap there but my mother you know is the kind of person who would just somebody would say like oh i'm a tv weatherman and my mother would go off in 20 minutes We're like i have always thought i'd be a good meteorologist and she'll just start (laughs) randomly and the people in the room be like what is wrong with this person and so i think on some level i am always afraid of being that you know i'm I'm assuming that she was that way before she was diagnosed as mentally ill i'm sure she was i mean i was very young and so i don't know but um how long has she been I mean, she, you know, has been, you know, uh, hospitalized a couple times and has had issues. We don't speak, so I don't really know. Um, By your choice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been times where I had to kind of reestablish contact with her for various periods of time. I used to send her money and stuff like that, and then it just kind of got, it got too much. So, um, but... She, it was one of those things where when I was growing up, she had what back in the 70s would have been referred to as a breakdown. And I always had in my head that, well, that's when things change. But as I've gotten older, I seriously doubt that that's true. I think it's probably just a nice, convenient way for my dad to try to convince me that I didn't marry a crazy person. But uh, <laughs> I think he did. And he just <laughs> is embarrassed by that. But, um, but yeah, so... She's, uh, I mean, she's doing the best she can, like mm. everybody is. So it's just one of those things where it's like, I don't, I can't. It's just, I can't, you know. But yeah, so I'm always sort of very conscious of trying to not be the person who just rambles on for 10 minutes like I'm doing at this very moment. Well, I'm interested in what you're saying, so I don't <laughs> see it that way. I've in, I've interviewed your wife, as you know, in the past, and I know that she has an estranged relationship with her dad. Oh yeah, man. Was we, that a 
thing you bonded on? Or? It really was. Our very first date, you know, we, we went out and, um, you know, the conversation always comes up like, what's your family like and blah, blah, blah. And I was always really reticent to talk about that kind of thing because, you know, a lot of women will judge you according to your relationship with your mother. You know, right. that's sort of pop psych 101, mm -hmm. you know. And so I was very awkward about bringing it up. And then she's like, oh, don't even worry about it. <laughs> yeah. She's like, you don't even know. And so we, we decided early on that we were going to not have kids <laughs> because they would be homicidal lobster baby weirdos. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in addition to all like the medical, there's like a ton of medical stuff on her side and my side and all that. But um, Cambry's dad, Cambry being my wife, her dad is in prison for for attempted murder, and uh, he was up for parole. He didn't get it. He's not going to get it because he still doesn't admit that he did anything. But eventually, he probably will get out. And so our plan is to try to hook him up with my mother. <laughs> and then they'll keep each other occupied. And if he happens to go crazy again and kill someone, well, then... He goes back to jail and problem solved. Then <laughs> you're both free. Yeah, exactly. Of <laughs> it's very very morbid. But these are the, these are this is what, this is what uh, qualifies as an in joke in my marriage. Yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious. Fun stuff, huh? Do you ever think about if you could? Because I I think you know basically we pair ourselves with people who have similar you know relationships with our with their parents that we have with ours. I I've thought about this question. Do you ever think you could be with somebody? who came from a very normal, loving family? Well, all I can say is I have never... I didn't have a ton of long-term relationships, period, before I met Cambry. I mean, I dated a woman for uh, like a year and a half once, and then three years later we went, we, went out, we went out again for almost a year. And then I went out for another girl for like eight months. or But I never really had long relationships. And I will say any relationship longer than three months that I've ever had has been with someone with a fucked up family. So you, you have I, to find that I comfort guess. zone. It was never it was never a conscious decision, but it just sort of happened like that. Because I I have to think that let's say you met a girl who came from a very warm, very loving, very supportive family who with a very close relationship with their parents, you'd either find yourself jealous of her relationship <laughs> with the parents, right? Yeah. Or or you'd be alienated. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, really funny with, with, with my wife and I is that my wife's family, despite all of the challenges, you know, obviously her dad being in jail. I mean, he wasn't in jail when she was growing up, at least not on a long-term basis. I think he had some scuffles with the law here and there. But her family, despite all of his challenges, was like really loving and, you know, very family-ish. Whereas my family was very kind of like, just wasn't like that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. great people, whatever. So we're, we are kind of jealous of each other's family in a certain way. I mean, she's jealous that like my, my family would have like the Christmas with the Christmas dinner and, and right. maybe she, the, the fact that we grew up in a better financial situation that, than, than she did. But uh, but it all evens out in the end. So yeah. you can be like, ah, oh, well, you have this, but I don't have exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. And like, but I if it's get... all weighted to one side, what do exactly. you do then? Yeah, I get very envious that like, oh my god, you have like a mom, mom, like a real mom who like you know bakes stuff and you know has, you know, pinches your cheek and stuff like that. You know, I mean, there's something <laughs> very uh, appealing about that. You do know? you get emotional in movies where you see the person have a good relationship with their mom? No, because it just. I, for a long time, it only recently occurred to me that they weren't all totally full of shit. Like, I always kind of <laughs> thought that that it was just one of those movie tropes that didn't actually exist in real life. You know, they're like, mm -hmm. oh, nobody, come on, nobody likes their mother. That's crazy. That's stupid. <laughs> That's stupid. That Nobody has that, you know? Right. And it's only been in, in recent years. I'm like, oh, maybe that is something that people have and you know like nobody's parents liked being married that's crazy every all parents fucking hate each other and you know it's like it, is, it starts to dawn on you that maybe you're skewing it slightly based on your own personal experience it's that subjective versus objective reality thing yeah you know? yeah yeah and you only you always think oh my reality is the only reality and anybody else's that's bullshit that's solipsism right there my friend <laughs> uh but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do on the on. I will say I do think most of it is still bullshit. But <laughs> I, I mean, I think that people like to fetishize or 
everybody likes the idea of a traditional family, but I don't know that that exists much. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. to to a degree, I think it does, but not anymore. And even when it quote unquote like the fifties, when people talk about back right. in the good old days where mom and pop were married and stuff like yeah, and they dad drank in the bathroom all all night and <laughs> mom was popping pills and right. <laughs> whatever you know and going out to the airstream and getting high yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> all right well you want, you want to take a look at this philosopher let's with me? do it all right cool the philosopher who alex picked out for you is a guy named william of shampoo I'm trying to not say shampoo, but I think it is shampoo. Can I see the spelling? Yeah, because of it? if you look at the I'm pronunciation, not with this philosopher. look at this. Shampoo, I believe, is how it's pronounced. Shampoo. So he even did a phonetic spelling for you S H A M hyphen capital P capital O. Shampoo. Uh, shampoo. Shampoo. All right. You can take French in high school? No. Probably uh, be like shampoo. Shampoo. William of Shampoo. William of Shampoo. I don't, I'm not familiar with this dude. And uh, he said, what you have in common is uh, your album was called Two for Flinching. So he picked a philosopher of fear. Oh, interesting. All um, right. And he put a note here. Note, most knowledge of William is secondhand from his student and enemy. From his student and enemy. Wow. Peter Aberland. Ablard. Peter Ablard. Ab- I, Ablard. You'll Ablard. see as we go that I can't pronounce any names. Oh, I think we've already established that. Yeah. Peter Ablard. Text from William is also referenced in other works. Here's the synopsis. Okay. William says that when we try to avoid sin, we begin at a disadvantage. Our mind can naturally tell good from evil, but our bodies and minds are so linked that we often cannot choose to tell what is right from what feels good. Reason may be useless here. Fear, not wisdom, is what keeps us good. William describes three kinds of fear. The first is a natural fear of danger and pain, felt by all. The second is fear of losing objects or punishment. It is a fear based on comfort instead of justice. Those with this fear will act rightly, but only because of the consequences. And the third fear is the fear of God's power. It's synonymous with our love of God because it is a fear bound to respect and thanks. This is the fear we follow to virtue. Peter Ablard, I'm guessing that's how you say his name, Peter Ablard, who wrote on and expanded Williams's ideas, goes so far as to say that the intent of an act is what matters, not the act itself, further showing Williams's point that sin is an internal process. All right. I got most of that. Up until the very end, at a point, I started thinking about, like, daisies and birds flying around <laughs> my head and things like that. But I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, is this where I try to interpret that? or? Uh, yeah. I think he, you know, basically saying there's three reasons that that fear, three ways that fear is effect, fear affects people. I definitely agree with the. Well, part one was which one again? Uh, fear of danger and pain. Well, yeah, that's a simple thing. Like, yeah. I'm not going to jaywalk because I'm afraid of getting hit by a car. Right. You know, or uh, like that's one reason to quote unquote do good. Uh, two is afraid of being afraid of punishment and mm-hmm. like or I'm not going things. to. Yeah. Exactly. Losing things, i.e. your freedom or your money or, you know, that you're not going to shoplift, not because you, you're morally upstanding, but because you don't want to get busted. Right. Essentially. And then three was what again? And then the three is a fear of God's power. That's a little vague for me. I mean, I don't... He's saying the fear will follow to virtue. Well, I, if I'm... If I'm trying to guess what he means is that there is a sort of existential feeling of punishment of fear of punishment that even if no one sees it someone saw it somewhere and it's going to come back and bite you at some point whether it's in this world or the next or whatever that somehow you have made a decision that will be have to be accounted for at some point which i also see as like self-punishing you know yeah 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 i mean i think that that's a I think it's probably something we all feel on some level if you're a rational human being. I mean, I'm not a religious person. 
that's not true. I don't believe in God. I believe in religion, but not God. <laughs> if that, um, like I'm, yeah. I, I do believe in like people getting together in groups and thinking about how to be a better person and all those things. It's just all of the actual specifics that I don't give a crap about. But um, I think the idea that there is a God somewhere who sees all and will eventually punish you, even as a quote-unquote atheist, I do understand that feeling. It's like, okay, this just feels wrong on some level, and surely there will be some day when the bill comes due. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is that just because I've been raised to feel that way from the get-go? If I had been raised by wolves or, you know raised in some strange humanist colony would i not feel that way um i don't know i mean i grew up in a catholic family uncle is a priest very catholic aunts and uncles like so i'm sure a lot of that crap seeped into my brain yeah whether i wanted to or not i definitely feel like just not doing good things makes you even on a subconscious level makes you feel worse and by, you know, obviously the opposite is true, too. When you do good things, whether or not you're consciously thinking about anything about God or anything else, you just kind of, I think it all comes back to, like, self-esteem and it comes, you yeah, know. Yeah, being responsible for happiness is very gratifying on an ego level. Mm-hmm. You know, um, being the cause of something good it just it feels good now i know that a lot of religious people would say that that's because instinctively you know that that is what god requires of you that but you're that, saying it's just we've been conditioned that this is a good thing and doing it will make you feel good i don't know i don't know where that line is i think it's 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 part that but i mean there i think that on any level even if you were raised by wolves or ra- raised out in the wood woods if you saw an animal with its foot caught in a bush or something, you know, in a briar patch or, you know, in a, mm-hmm. a barbed wire fence or something, like that, releasing that animal would make you feel good. Maybe and not that, if you were with the wolves. You might be. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, all, all perspective. <laughs> Pick your relevant example. But I think that there is something about doing good that makes you feel good and doing bad that makes you feel bad. Or at least seeing how you could do good and refusing to do it. I mean, that's sometimes the hard thing to, something I fight with, you know, is like, oh, there's a million things I could be doing right now that would help the world, and yet I have this episode of Boardwalk Empire to watch, and so <laughs> those things will be undone. Yeah, you know? I think about it too. I often feel like, well, maybe the point of being here is to add something positive, and by not adding something positive, in the times that I'm not doing something positive, I'm therefore doing something negative. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's something I I wonder about. Not utterly convinced that's true, but it's certainly true that those times where you do feel like you're responsible for goodness being put out in the world, that there is a palpable feeling of glee. You know, there's an elated sort of uh, pheromone feeling that you get, you know, or uh, endorphins that like, oh my God, I, I just was responsible for something awesome, you know? It also fascinates me that good and bad are generally universal, what's considered good and what's considered bad. Like... You know, whatever culture you're in and whatever language, you know, killing another person, it's bad, you know, or, but, but it, you know, that's the most extreme example, but pretty much everything that's bad is bad across the board, despite what culture you are in, what religion you're in. I mean, I think, you know, the golden rule to do unto others as you'd have done to you, of course, that is something that transcends region or culture or era or whatever it's just Mm -hmm. i don't want to be punched in the face so therefore i can assume that you probably would prefer not to be punched in the face as well so therefore and so yes part of the reason i don't punch you in the face is because i don't want you to punch me back and i'm scared and i'm afraid of being punished and all those things but also part of it is there's this genuine feeling of i wouldn't want that done to me so keep things good keep things positive yeah like you said there's some kind of a karmic element to it as well like yeah there's something at play there and you know, people would, religious people would call that, you know, God or morality or whatever, but there's just a genuine feeling of, I don't want to put out something that I don't want to receive back. Mm-hmm. And so why not try to get along with people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, we got these, we got these three All right. different fears to go with. Let me tell you a bit about our guy, Mr. Shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> William of Shampoo. Shampoo. He was born, hmm, 
Okay, so his his real name is Gulami Guillaume. All right, Guillaume. Guillaume is that Guillaume. right? Yeah, it's French. Guillaume? It's French. William. I don't know. For, I should have took French. No, you shouldn't have. Did you take Spanish? No, I oh. draw. I didn't take any of them. Oh, and I, and when I was in high school, you had to take either French or Spanish. That was the. It was we could opt out. You could take one language or two of something else. I don't remember what it is, but I took the two of something else. Hmm. Obviously, those years of French I took have all paid off in this one moment that I knew that Guillaume. Guillaume. Is, uh, <laughs> I like Guillaume. I like that much much better. <laughs> <laughs> Guillaume de Champeau. <laughs> Still saying shampoo. <laughs> Champon. Lived from 1070, January 18th, 1070, till um, the year 1121 in, maybe you know this word too, Chalons in Champagne. Let me see. Chalons. Chalons. Uh, what? Oh, Chalons. That, that's probably how it would be pronounced. Chalons en Champagne. Chalons en Champagne. And he's known in English as William of Shampoo. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> and um it's very rare that, that uh hair care wanders into the realm of philosophy yeah. but with this guy he was a french philosopher and theologian he was born in shampoo near milan after studying under anselm of leon and rossellinius he taught in the school of the cathedral of notre dame of which he was made canon in 1103. What's canon, do you uh, Sainted. Oh, okay. I know it's, uh, Anselm was a saint. I know that. So. so, yeah, this dude's a church philosopher, which I always kind of... I mean, it's a very modern way to think that, you know, how can you be a, how can you be a, uh, a tied so tightly to the Catholic Church and also be a philosopher? Like, that's... You know, you're kind right. of already... Are you free <laughs> You're thinking? a little biased, you know? Right. But that's where all the philosophy existed in that period. So mm -hmm. there I weren't just random dudes being like, I don't believe in God. Oh, okay. Well, then we will kill you now. You're going along with basically the knowledge you've got and philosophizing on that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're looking, you know, if you accept that there is a guy named Jesus Christ and he is Lord and Savior or whatever, you are then seeing philosophy through that prism. Right. You know. When you look at those kind of guys, do you think their philosophy is valid when you remove... Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's, well, it's kind of, it's funny that we were talking about this because before we started recording, we were talking about Robert Klein, and, and I was saying that I listen to Robert Klein now, and I'm sure he's, I know he's a very influential comedian, I can't stand it. It's like hacky and corny and, and whatever, but I know it wasn't then. It's like when you hear a Chuck Berry song or whatever, it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm, I'm sure that blues riff that you're playing was really revolutionary at the time, but it's been you know, expanded on so many ways since mm -hmm. then that you can't get that feeling of freshness from the original article. I, I think it's probably the same way with a lot of like religious philosophers. It's like they were really, you know, nothing, you know, Copernicus said or Isaac Newton or whatever about, you know, the universe uh, and science that would all seem very rudimentary now. But in the mm -hmm. context of, you know, of, of that time. world, of its era, then you have to respect it, I guess. So I guess what I'm saying is will, uh, Guillaume de Champeau is the Robert Klein of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how some guys just don't translate over to the new generation. And the difference, the distinction is when you're talking about science, I mean, there's always going to be new discoveries. Yeah. With comedy... I don't know if there's really new discoveries. It's just stylistic, and um, yeah, I mean you're right. It's not a it's not a straight line of discovery the way that science is. Like, oh, now we found out this. Put it in the box of stuff we know. Now we found out this. Put it in the box of stuff. It's we know. It's also interesting when you look back at other people who were very influential, whose work remains relevant to speaks to us. You know. Yeah, I mean it's very rare for me, and and I might be you know alone in this, but. I'm not one of those people who can watch the greats and get a whole lot out of it. I can with music, mm -hmm. but with comedy, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I'm sure, I'm sure Alan King was really ripping it up in his day, but it just I watch it now and I feel like I'm watching like, oh, this is all the reasons I hated stand-up comedy when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, I never can understand Alan King. I can't understand any of those dudes, honestly. But really? it had its place in its time. You know, what about what about Carlin? 
Yes. I mean, I adored George Carlin growing up. And, you know, I had Class Clown and AM, FM. Is it AM? What was the Whatever. FM. FM. FM, FM. Well, yeah, yeah, whatever. FM, AM. And now, though, I will say I, I listen back on it. And it doesn't kill me the way it used to because there's some sort of very there's some comedic devices that he uses that now feel very played um mostly because he created them and other people ripped them off a thousand times but still some of his ideas and his word choices and things like that managed to still feel fresh and you know if i'm sure that if i saw george carlin performing now you know, a young George Carlin for me now, I would feel like, wow, this guy's kind of like a fossil. Like he's very old fashioned in his presentation, but that's a great bit and that's a great bit and that's a great premise mm. and all that. So it would feel like somebody kind of playing old fashioned music. It was like, it's like if you went to a concert and you saw a band where they all were wearing big shoulder pads and playing like the guitar and you'd be like, oh, is this like a throwback band? <laughs> but that song's kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> way of looking at it. So among his pupils was Peter Ablau, of which he had a disagreement with because Ablau changed some of his ideas, and William thought Ablau was too arrogant. Ablau calls him... You just keep hitting that harder and harder. <laughs> Ablau! <laughs> It'll just become a noise. And yeah. <laughs> so, Ablau calls him calls him the supreme master of dialectic after he replaced his master as the new teacher. In 1108, he resigned his position as archdeacon of Paris and master of Notre Dame and retreated to the shrine of St. Victor outside the city walls of Paris, where under his influence, there he formed what would become the Abbey of St. Victor. Was it, wait, are you talking about Abelard there, or are you still talking about Guillaume de Champeau? Uh, I think we're talking about Guillaume de Champeau, yeah. Probably not a good sign when either of us know exactly who we're talking about. No, yeah, it would be Guillaume de Champeau. De Champeau. Yeah. Yes. It, won't be, it would be him. Not, uh... <laughs> Sacre bleu. His surviving works are a fragment on the... How would I say this? What is Which this? word? Eucharist. Uh, Eucharist. Eucharist. What does that mean? Uh, it means like the taking of the body of Christ. Ah. You know, the, the whole bread and wine. That's thing. something Jews know nothing about. It's... You're not missing much. <laughs> the body? <laughs> yeah. You know, just the whole basis of Christianity. But, uh, yeah, that's what they're referring to. I've seen in those, like, movies, the Italian movies, where they come up there, the body of Christ, and he eats it, and they, mm -hmm. the body of Christ. Take this, all of you, and eat this. This is my body. I, I, I have memories, you know, I could probably recite half of the Mass just from being a kid and having to be dragged there every Sunday, even though I haven't been to Mass in 25 years. That's all just a jumble in my brain, and yet I can't remember important people who I meet at a party, you know, or whatever, but I can still remember parts of the stupid Catholic Mass. Did it? Does it feel, like, medieval to you, the, the Well, that, one of the things that I actually love about Catholicism is uh, that there is a pageantry to it. Like, there's a theater, there's a sense of, of uh, mm -hmm. grandiosity to it in terms of, um, you know just the ritual and that there are these various parts. There's things that happen in the mass. This is where we all shake hands with each other. This is where you go up and you get the body of Christ. This is where you stand. This is where you kneel. This is where you repeat after the, after, you know, um, the black church has that a lot too, in terms of creating ritual and things like that. But I think most modern Protestantism, like sort of Episcopalian white run of the mill Christian religions, they kind of stripped a lot of that away. You know, um, mm -hmm. the Catholics were all about the theater and the show and the drama of it. And of course, that's all silly and nonsense, but it kind of makes it sort of fun in a way. I, I think that that definitely probably flows into what I like about doing stand-up too, is this sort of presentation of an idea. Like in the middle of the Mass, there's what they call the homily. Like in the Protestant church, they call it the sermon. You know, but there's the part where... You know, you do all these readings that are sort of preordained on certain weeks of the year. This is you read from the book of whatever and blah, blah, blah. But then there's always about a, a five to ten minute chunk in the middle of the homily. And that's where the priest kind of pontificates on something of his own. Or, I was going to say or her, but it's not her. It's his uh, mm -hmm. of his own choosing based on maybe what's going on in the world or what's going on seasonally. Like we're headed to Christmas. Let's talk about the nature of giving or blah, blah, blah. And that I always 
think of that when I think of comedy in a way of it's really an extended chunk. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like a long <laughs> bit, really. Can it be on anything? I you or know what? It, I mean, I was so young. Like a sermon, like it has to be. Well, I think that there's some sort of guidance. I mean, I don't think that you know the priest would just be like, "Hey, this week I'm going to talk about Call of Duty." Right. <laughs> you know? I um, think that's like the line between <laughs> priest and comic, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, although honestly, I bet I bet they could. There would obviously be you'd be bringing it back to some sort of moral lesson. <laughs> right. There'd be something in there, right? Um, but it definitely can be based on things that are going on in the world. You know, hey, we're about to go back to war with ISIS in Iraq. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Call of Duty. The world, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, his surviving works are a, a fragment on the Eucharist inserted by Jean Mabillon. In his edition of the works of St. Bernard. Ah, St. Bernard. (laughs) (laughs) That one, you know. Yeah, I know that one. It's one of the few non-human saints. Yeah. uh... I I like those movies. Yeah, yeah. Big (laughs) saint uh, who had a big thing of wine around its neck and would say, anyway. Um, Yes, what about St. Bernard? Oh, I was talking about Beethoven, the movie Beethoven. Right, I know. I was thinking of St. Bernard's, you know, they would would go help skiers that were... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's the whole uh, St. Bernard's. They were like rescue dogs up in the mountains, like in in, uh, the Alps and stuff. They would... I don't even know if this is true, but the whole cliche is they would have that little uh, barrel of wine around their neck that Uh they would bring to like stranded people out in the snow that would warm them up Ah. until help could arrive. That's pretty good. Wine delivery dogs. Yeah. Nice. Let's get on that, Brooklyn. I remember when I saw that movie as a kid, I wanted a St. Bernard so badly. I was like, oh, they're the coolest dogs ever. They're probably the, they probably give the least, like the yield of enjoyment is probably the lowest (laughs) for St. Bernard. They probably live like six years. I mean, they're so big. I'm sure they have like respiratory problems. And just like, what can you do with a St. Bernard except just kind of watch it sit there? You can't like... (laughs) Have it sit in your lap. They you can't take it in the car so, with you. Maybe it was just a ploy from the St. Bernard breeders. Those, <laughs> because then my, my buddy in school at the time, Gabby Krause, his cousins had a St. Bernard. And I went over his house. I was raised religious Jewish. And so we would go over each other's houses for Shabbat. And so I went over his house in Woodmere for Shabbat one week. And I said, come on, can we walk over to your cousin's house and see the St. Bernard? And we went over, and, and his cousin Saint Bernard. It 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 didn't attack me in a vicious way. It attacked me in an excited way. But but it ripped my shirt right off. Yeah, it ripped my my shirt like literally ripped my shirt off. It's the only time I've had a shirt ripped off of me. <laughs> really, never else. No, never. No, no, in a sort of erotic sort of way. It's no, just, just dogs. No, and I've <laughs> I've been looking for a dog to do it ever since. <laughs> I'm rubbing a, peanut butter all over my body. Have you ever had a shirt ripped off of you? No. Oh, not nothing even like once. it. No, <laughs> nothing like it. I'll see if Gobby's cousin still had, but probably the lifespan. Like yeah, I'm, I'm guessing be. probably it's uh, the dog's <laughs> out of commission. So, yes. Inserted by Jean Malbion in his edition of the works of St. Bernard and the Moralia a Brevi alla and. Diorigen. I don't know what any of that is. Forget it. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything to me. Well, I um, would love to have some input, but I don't know what the fuck you were saying. So Anima. I, I don't know. It's not in this language. We'll, we'll move past it. Come on. <laughs> in the last of these... Speak English, Guillaume de Champeau. Let's see if I can give it another try to pronounce this. Abrevi Allah and Diorigen... Can I take a look? I yeah, can... anime, anime. I don't know. Probably means life anime. Like uh, I'm guessing Moralia is probably morality. I bet that probably means a brief something, brief view of morality or something. And de origine, which is origin, the origin of life. Ah, I bet that's okay. What it means. That makes sense. There we go. Glad we got that established. Somewhere there's like a high school or a uh, college philosophy TA just banging his head against his uh, <laughs> desk right now. Well, he'll be, great, he'll be grateful to you. In the last of these, he maintains that children who die unbaptized must be lost, the pure soul being defiled by the grossness of the body, and declares that God's will is not to be questioned. He upholds the theory of creationism, an example that a soul is specially created for each human being, Ravazion 
Molien. What do you think? <laughs> That's a person, so I don't know. Ravison. Ravison Molien. Ravison Molier has discovered a number of fragments by him, amongst which the most important is the Essentia de et. <laughs> Just the look of just sheer I give oh up. Oh my god. Just you started and you're just like, oh just look at this. I can't. I yeah, just can't. The what do you got there? Uh the essence of God and the substance of God. De essentia de a de substantia de D E I is God. And I don't know what I don't know, dude. Well, I don't know. These are just things he wrote. Sure. I guess that's what we're saying. Well, obviously, they did not make a big impact. Uh, there's no Harry Potter or Twilight on that list. <laughs> They're consist- they, these things are consisting of discussions on ethics and scriptural interpretation. Is also, it's also ascribed to Mr. Champol. He's considered the founder of extreme realism, a philosophy which held that universals exist independently of both the human mind and particular objects, a philosophy that followed on from Platonic realism. Yeah, so basically saying that there are universals, good and evil, there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong, that they exist independently of what you or I might think are right or wrong. That's what we were just talking about. That these things are right, these things are wrong. And I don't know that I believe that. I do know that... There are things that make us feel good, and there are things that make us not feel good. Mm-hmm. I do think that sometimes, like you, like we were saying before, there are those few things, like don't punch me in the face because I don't want to be punched in the face. Don't kill me because I don't want to be killed. Mm-hmm. Those are probably universal to to every culture. But then there are ones that probably are just as sacred in an American's mind that wouldn't be as sacred to the mind of someone in a different culture or a different mm-hmm. era, and vice versa. So I think that there are there might be. 10 things that I think most people in our culture would accept as being right or wrong or whatever. Does this relate to like 10 commandments or? (laughs) Or Maybe. Yeah, Yeah. maybe. But I mean, five of them might be universal and maybe five of them are just based on our culture. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm just picking those numbers completely arbitrarily. Okay, I'll go with it. It makes uh, as much sense as anything else to me. But yeah, I I think that um, like slavery, for example, you know, we take it as a given that the idea that you should the idea that one person could own another person, at least at this era in time, we all kind of accept that that is wrong. And But there are plenty of parts of the world where they don't have that hang-up. But, but <laughs> you, you know? don't think in, in their hearts they still feel it's wrong, where they're like, ah, whatever. No, I don't. I don't. I think that in certain cultures there is this idea that certain people are anointed by God or you know by some supreme being, and other people are there to service a different class of people, Hmm. you know, that there is an idea that I've been ordained by God to be in charge of these people, you know, that, that it's my responsibility to look out for them and it's their responsibility to glorify, you know, to help me do my thing. All right. I think that there are people who think that, I think there are a lot of people who think like that in the entertainment business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've met them, but I always try to give them the benefit of the doubt that in their heart, they know it's wrong. You know, (sighs) people have, such an ability to find an intellectual uh, structure for their own narcissism and sociopathy. Like, they will find some way to justify the most douchey of behaviors, you mm-hmm. know? It's very easy, too. I mean, there's... Like, say something... Tell me something that you think would be horrible that I did. Like, that... And, I'll, and I will find a way that I could justify it in my mind. I don't know enough things about what you but do. But just anything. No, but anything. Like, oh. as a person, what's something I shouldn't do. Okay. What you shouldn't do. That you, in your heart, you would think I would know that I'm not supposed to do. Kidnapping. I don't think okay. you should kidnap. Kidnapping. I could say to myself that... It's too easy, because you could say, this, oh, those people are abusive to the child. Right. But let's, well, let's, let's make it even harder. Let's say it's a normal kid growing up in a normal home, mm-hmm. et cetera, and so forth. I could say that I am going to show this kid a different life in a part of the world, and that the life that this kid will have with me is more exciting and more interesting than the life he would have living in his crappy little suburban home. So, yeah, you could talk yourself into anything. Yeah. Is what I mean, that's, that's, that's what I told myself when I kidnapped for the first time. That's, <laughs> that's how I justified it. But <laughs> And how's it working out for you? You well, give the kid back yet? Uh, I just left him on the side of the road somewhere. <laughs> kid was boring. <laughs> 
Hey, listen, we would never have kids, but we'd adopt them and ditch them. That's Absolutely. <laughs> or rent them. They should have like a red box for adoptions. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. I think you're right. I think I would I would think more people would get adopted if it wasn't for the time commitment. Yeah. Time and then I have to like bring them back to the same place and it know. might be nice to like raise an Asian kid for a month. You know? Yeah. Give this kid a little bit of a taste of what uh you know what my life is like, I learn a little bit, he learns a little bit. Right. It's an exchange. Absolutely. You know? Then I'll uh, then I'll adopt uh, an African kid. You got to mix Absolutely. it up a little bit. You can't you get have the whole them all collection. At once. Yeah. It's very important you get a whole United States of Benetton sort of <laughs> thing going. All right, would you read a paragraph from uh, yes. Mr. Champ? Where? Uh, right there in front of you. Oh, this one right here. In fact, we say an intention is good, that is right in itself but that an action does not bear any good in itself, but proceeds from a good intention. Whence, when the same thing is done by the same man at different times, by the diversity of his intention, however, his action is now said to be good, now bad. That was a string of word salad. But I no, it, it no was idea. exactly what you were just proving. Okay. I, I, from what I got from yeah. it, it was just basically saying the person can Justify. skew the intention. Yeah. You know, so I think I was so busy on trying to read the sentence properly that, that I was to me too. I, yeah. I get so focused on on not screwing up the wording of it that I well, and it's especially hard to focus on it. Abelard seems pretty in love with commas, <laughs> so there's just a lot of like clause. Let me say, in fact, we say that intention is good, that is right in itself, but that an action does not bear any good in itself, but proceeds from a good intention. Whence, when the same thing is done by the same man at different times, by the diversity of intention, however, his action is now said to be good, now bad. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That's exactly a different just, time, different context, different culture. Mm -hmm. The same act that might have been considered good is now considered bad. Yeah. So good intention. Intention can... Yes. What What is considered good intention can And I vary. think that's probably what he was saying, that, that universals exist outside of intention. Because if you only do good based on what you feel is good, then you are subject you're sub, to the subjectivity of your time and place and era. Whereas mm -hmm. if you only accept that these sort of universal truths are good or bad, then that will transfer no matter what else is going on in your life and who you are and where you are. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. almost saying that like don't you're not smart enough to judge for yourself what's good and bad. We'll tell you what's good and bad. Right. And just trust us on yeah. this. <laughs> so he makes a good argument for that though. Yeah. I mean it's probably true. But that, <clears throat> but it it gets back to the same old argument though. Well well who gets to decide then? What <laughs> like why do you get to tell me what are the universal things? Why can't I tell you what the universal things are? Like you might think it's universally true that women shouldn't be able to show their ankles in public. You know, like mm -hmm. who says <clears throat> says says who? You know, gotta get those ankle covers. Yeah, come on, come on, ladies, <laughs> your slutty ankles. Yeah, that's that's. I guess that comes back to the old argument of for religion, for the Bible. Like if every individual can't decide. And you can't elect a certain amount of people, then you, you say God decided it. Because, well, yeah. you know, we need somebody who's not one of us. Yeah, all, all it is is it basically just Who knows it codifies what a culture believes to be right or wrong, but removes the fallibility of it being an actual human idea. It's saying, oh, this is what God says. This is not what we say. This is what God says. It's like, well, pretty sure you said it and then just said God said it. <laughs> but... um. There's a dude who, when I was in college, this guy, Ludwig von Feuerbach, and I was taking a... What a great name. Yeah. Atheism, theism, existentialism class. And his whole idea was that every, that God in every culture is a personification of the values that that culture thinks are important. That the Muslim God of, say, 1000 AD was a personification of the various personality traits that those people thought were valuable in the same way that, you know, a different culture will come up with a different God. You know, they might have some basic things in common, but they're basically like if you were to create a, a, a superhero based on all the things that you think are important. Like if you created a superhero, he'd have a sense of humor and he'd be, you know, he'd whatever. He'd mm -hmm. have the personality traits that you think are important. And basically, if I remember it well, what he was saying is when you see that that is true, it's like, why can't you just kind of get rid of the whole God part and say, this is what we imagine to be the perfect person. This person set of personality. Like what is Jesus other than a 
a collection of the personality traits that people thought, this is what we feel like people should be like. And maybe it was based on an original guy eventually, but people just started adding things, personality traits to him that they thought that people should have. You know, it's like, oh, you know, Jesus also believed this because we think people should believe this. I guess the answer to it is your own question before, who gets to decide? Yeah, yeah. So that's, but it's an interesting way of putting it for sure. Mm -hmm. Let's do the quotes. What do you think? Yeah. Fear is the beginning of all wisdom. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true in the sense that it's the thing that makes you stop and think and navigate a situation. If you weren't afraid of anything, you would just sort of bowl through life. Until w- something killed you because you were, should have been afraid of exactly, it. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the fear is an awareness of your surroundings, an awareness of what's going on around you. And your desire to conquer that fear is how you learn about things, I would imagine. Does it have to be fear, though? Could it be something else that makes you... Because it's kind of a bleak way of looking at it. It's basically saying, if we didn't have to watch out, we wouldn't know anything. (laughs) Or, unless you flip it the other way around, though, if you look at fear as simply being your brain telling you, hey, figure this out. You you know, uh, you could invert it and say that it's that it actually kind of makes fear less scary in a way Mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, if you put your hand over a flame, you know, you can look at that as pain or you can look at as your amazing machine of a body saying, hey, don't do that. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, and that's why, you know, when you see people, you know, martial arts people who can conquer pain and, you know, punch mm-hmm. through boards and put their hand over a flame and hold it or whatever, when they start to think of it as, okay, I'm just going to override the signal that my body is sending my brain right now, which is to not do that. You know, if you can, if you look at fear that way, it's like, all right, I see what this is. I acknowledge what's going on right now, but it's not some vague mystical thing. It's, this is my brain, my lizard brain, certain central nervous system warning me about a situation and now that i am aware of that i can you know deal with it do you think we ascribe this ideal of knowledge to people who are more fearful than we do people who are less fearful like if you see somebody who's very afraid do you think oh this guy must know some more shit than me (laughs) well it depends what kind of fear you're talking about there's obviously different kinds of fear there's there's fear of you know boo you know i'm gonna scare Mm -hmm. you and you're gonna be startled and then there's fear of mortality or there's fear of failure and things like that are a little bit more amorphous. Um, I certainly don't think that someone who's easily frightened by jumping out, people jumping out from behind, I don't think like, wow, that person must be brilliant. He's so much smarter than me. Uh, (laughs) You got to be afraid of the right things. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, yeah. So I don't, I don't think I necessarily think that. (laughs) (laughs) I always think of that Mike Birbiglia line where he goes, uh, do you remember from his old stand-up? He would talk about. Uh, I don't know. His, his girlfriend asked him, "What are you afraid of?" Mm. And he'd always say, "Bears." Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that that's basically playing off that same thing that, but, of fears. Playing basically off stupid fear, like yeah. you know. Uh, but it's also it's also <laughs> playing off sort of the two different definitions of the word. This yeah. dude, Julius Sharp, who who's a writer on. Uh, wrote for Family Guy for years, wherever he's a pretty successful dude, an old friend of mine. And he used to have this joke that he used to do at crappy bar shows that I always thought was hilarious where he'd say, you know, people say they believe in ghosts, but I really believe in ghosts. Like, I think they can do it. <laughs> you know, which is kind of the same rhetorical yeah, yeah, device. Yeah. It's like, ah, I'm using the two different definitions of believe there. Right. But, uh, uh, should I move on to the next quote? Yeah. <laughs> okay. He does not merit grace who serves not his love of justice, but his love of things or fear of punishment. And this is getting back to what we were talking before. It's that you're not deserving of grace, meaning God's love, eternal, eternity in heaven, all those things, if the only reason you're doing good is because you love your stuff or your fear of being punished. It's got to be about justice. It's got to be about doing right things because you know that they're the right things to do and not out of any personal fear or gain. Mm. So basically, if your animal lizard brain is doing the work for you, you don't get the credit. Yeah, or if you're you're kind of, if you're putting yourself up, if you're giving ten dollars to charity so that you can spend the next month telling people that you give ten dollars to charity, you know mm-hmm. that it's. I mean, I'm extrapolating a little, but I think that's basically what he's saying. That um, don't do it for the credit. 
Yeah, essentially. That the only way to achieve grace is if you're doing good things simply for the principle of that this these things are the good things to do. Which I think is probably... I mean, I, the whole idea of grace is silly, but... I think that there's definitely, and I think you could make it. You could make a, uh, an argument though that they're one and the same, and who cares why you're doing it if you're doing good things? Yeah, it doesn't matter what your intentions Just are. Just do the good things. Yeah, there's enough people who don't want to do that much. Yeah, I mean, I always i i do this bit on my latest special. Um, it's called the fun part, streaming on Netflix, uh, but. Which is kind of a really dumb version of this argument, you know, the people who say that, you know, I got to be me. It's like, there, you know, there is no you. There is mm-hmm. no you. Nobody gives a shit who you are on the inside. Like, you are what you do. Like, if you want to be a good person, just do good things. It's not any more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Like, if you steal my wallet, you're a thief. That's it doesn't you matter now. what yeah. you feel about yourself. Like, inside, I'm a good person. I did steal his wallet, but inside, I'm not the kind of person who steals things. Like, no, you're literally a collection of the actions you take. Absolutely. So, I think so, too. Yeah, whereas I think this guy would not agree with that fully. Hmm. He would say that, you know, no, your intentions have to be pure. It doesn't, you know, my feeling is if you spend 20 hours a week working at a soup kitchen, you're a good person <laughs> because those people got meals and they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. And so who cares? That's who you are now. Yeah. Who cares about what your intentions are? And obviously the, the, the good you do has to be commensurate with whatever good you're getting out of it. You know, it, like I said, giving 10 bucks to a charity does not then give you the right to try to reap all these rewards as being a quote unquote good person. But final quote, Fear of God is better called the love of God. And actually, that's a quote I've actually heard before. And that's getting back to that thing, that, that fear is awe, is majesty, is accepting the bigness of God. It is that fear is you accepting the universal truths of God's law, I think. And can that quote work for you if you substituted God out? Does it mean anything um, to you? Fear of life is better called the love of life, I guess. I, I would maybe not put love in... I would say like fear is better called the appreciation of bigness. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. that, like that fear is for a brief moment letting the chaos and complexity of moment-to-moment existence really accepting that for a brief moment before you kind of shut it all down again. Like, you know, when that sort of existential panic that we all have about death or whatever, you know, there are moments where you glimpse just how fucking crazy and nonsensical and chaotic life is. And it's really scary. And then it's like, okay, one more beer, please. You know, then you kind of bring it back down to moment to moment life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's not what Guillaume de Champeau would, he would probably not say we were saying the same thing, but that's how I interpret that. What do you think is the relationship between fear and love? Because I, I think ideally romantic love that sort of passionate, momentary, intense feeling of love is about loss of control. I think love in many ways is a way of being able to exist in a state of fear and not be afraid, if that makes sense. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like of uh, There's this Elvis Costello album called Mighty Like a Rose, which is always a phrase that I just think is so awesome. Like the strength to be vulnerable, the strength to be crushable. Like can you be strong enough to be completely unprotected and, you know, able to be smashed and smushed at any moment. Are you strong enough to exist in that vulnerable state? So, you know? again, it's looking at fear and saying, I'm jumping in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to run away. I'm going to acknowledge this for what it is and try to function anyway, you know. Um, that's certainly something that I think that every stand-up comedian deals with, that feeling of, getting up on stage and also there's that feeling sometimes when something goes horribly wrong, you know what I mean? And, and only years can teach you how to sit in that space, just mm-hmm. marinate in that awkwardness and not be put off by it and just be like, you know, and, and when you can conquer it and when you can get through it, especially I did this fucking corporate gig two weeks ago. That was such a nightmare. It was for Wendy's. It was like a bunch of Wendy's executives. And I have this long bit about how I talk about, that my wife and I adopted a child from Central America and it makes me such a good person, blah, blah, blah. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, $22 a month, Children International, and ha-ha, it's a yeah. sponsoring, you know, not the most 
not the most that didn't reinvent the wheel, but it's a solid bit that I, I've always really enjoyed doing. And it always sometimes it's a little mean because you know I do talk about like oh these fucking kids you have to sponsor blah blah blah. But the the bottom fell out of the room in a way that I can scarcely remember, and I just I could not figure out what the fuck was going on, and I. But I wasn't really like sweating or panicked about it. It was just, like the only thing I was panicked about was just because I'm getting paid. I want to make sure I right. don't lose my check. But I was kind of enjoying it. Like wow, I've never bombed on this joke in this particular way and I can't figure it out. Like, I don't know what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. And then a dude from the the company or whatever comes up to the stage, literally while I'm on stage, and says, uh, the Dave Thomas Wendy's Foundation is uh, this uh, the biggest adoption charity in the country. <laughs> and, and so they were mortified. First of all, because I think that they they were upset that I was kind of making light of adoption, period. Uh-huh. But they probably were worried about where the joke was going to go. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, no, where is this? And so, <laughs> I thought you guys just made hamburgers. <laughs> exactly. Who knew? Um, but having to sort of sit in that emotional space, I kind of got to the point where I sort of enjoy it a little bit. It's yeah. like kind of like cutting yourself so you can feel something. You know what I mean? Like, oh, wow. <laughs> I genuinely am bombing right now, and I'm not exactly sure what to yeah. do about it and it's kind of fun i've been there too yeah it's fun though i mean especially if you can dig yourself out yeah you know what i mean and and luckily they were a pretty affable group other than that and i was able to kind of make light of it and or sometimes some... you have to hang a lantern on your problem as i think lyndon johnson said that you know rather than try to pretend something didn't ex- happen or didn't exist just dive in harder and be like wow holy <laughs> crap is this awkward did you, you know? recover from it yeah yeah That's it great. was it was uh it was one of those moral victories. I mean, I will say after 17 and a half years, I've had enough moral victories for one lifetime. <laughs> but that was sort of a, an instance of being in a moment of fear and, and kind of just trying to stay calm in it, you know, and just accepting, okay, this is going terribly. <laughs> and what now? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Sometimes I'll, I'll, uh, if I've decided I don't like a crowd and, and it's not going good. I'll deliberately keep making it no good. Just sort of. <laughs> yeah. And that, well, and you're funny because that is also something that happens and they're related, but they're not quite the same thing mm-hmm. where you almost kind of want to just see like, okay, how much can I torpedo this and how much these people don't like me anyway. Mm-hmm. So now I'm just going to like punch them verbally. Yeah. For, <laughs> that's probably something to be avoided on the general level, but <laughs> yeah, either way, they both feel good in their oh, own yeah. way. Yeah. Yes, they do. All right, Christian. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for doing the show. Danny, thank you for hiking up through three flights of stairs in, <laughs> uh, in inland LIC to come to my humble abode. Yeah. It's a lovely abode. Thanks for now having me. Now it's time for the sex orgy. All right. Finally. I've been doing this podcast for over a year, and I've been waiting for these sex orgies. That's why I got into it. People strap in and strap on. (laughs) All right. Thanks, man. Thanks. That was my talk with Christian Finnegan. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks again to Stand Up Records, StandUpRecords.com for sponsoring the episode. Please go and donate or write into the show at thecomical at yahoo.com and let me know what you think. If you have something great to say, go leave it on iTunes with five stars and a nice rating. That would help the show's visibility quite a bit. And also check out my other show, The Mostly Bull Market, where I discuss a different company with a comedian instead of a philosopher. Also available on iTunes. Check it out. All right, everybody, have a great week, and I'll see you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.